Hey everyone, thanks for joining. I'm Greg, owner and head writer of the Whiskey Culture blog, and we have Orion, our co-writer and operations manager, here for another episode of the Whiskey Culture podcast, your window into the wide world of whiskey. Today we have Alex, the brand manager for Black Button Distilling. And brand manager being a very broad term, because when <laughs> when we were coming into the blog, um, we found out he actually wears quite a number of hats at the distillery. And Alex, if you'd like to tell us about those hats, I thought it was quite interesting. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, I, uh, I started with the company about four years ago. And actually, I began at the bar uh, for the company and having never bartended in my life. That's one of the fun parts of working for a craft distillery like Black Button. They're always looking for people that are excited about working in the industry. And if that means you got to teach them how to make an old fashioned, I think that's an easy way to get us started there. Uh, over time, I actually moved into being one of our Buffalo sales reps. So I took over a large portion of Buffalo, New York, which is our second largest market. Slowly but surely, ended up taking over that entire market before I kind of wanted to get into the marketing side for the company, uh, which during the pandemic turned to e-commerce, helping with a lot of our online sales and online partnerships. And even recently has started me working along with the master distiller to kind of manage our single barrel program. Um, we're going to talk about today the custom blending program. So. Just like any other small distillery, everybody kind of takes on a lot of different roles to, you know, make sure we keep the cogs moving. Awesome. So, yeah. So one of the things that we're pretty excited to announce is that we are working with Black Button right now to build a blend built by our community, which is pretty cool. So our community is giving uh, responses back to Black Button um, on their flavor profile, the types of whiskeys they enjoyed drinking. And those are going to directly influence the samples that are sent to us. And then we're going to live stream to our audience. Um, and we are going to let the audience and, and, and our viewers basically pick what the first barrel pick of whiskey is going to be, which we're really excited about. I think that's pretty cool. You know, it's been an awesome program. Uh, I think we looked around at the industry and we saw, obviously, single barrels are such a big thing. Mm -hmm. Everyone's looking for that opportunity to get something unique from a distillery. What we've always run up against is that, look, we're a smaller distillery. We don't just pull barrels and call them single barrels. I mean, they have to be specifically tasted and have something so unique or so complex and full that it can be defined as a single barrel. Otherwise, we're going to use it in our blend. That's for our standard one. Uh, or we're going to let it sit longer. And even on occasion, we might find a barrel that just isn't necessarily ever going to get there. Um, it doesn't happen that often, but we do try to be cognizant of something that is actually good to put out into the market. So in that process of actually trying barrels, generally what our team does is they've started to break down everything by the barrels that are very oak forward, barrels uh -huh. that are very sweet forward, spice forward, and there's a fourth character just called base, which all that means is that it has none of those kind of individually, but it's a really good mix of all of those characters and works well as a blending base overall. Got it. So no matter what, every single blend we do is going to have, you know, anywhere from five to 15 or so percent on average of that base bourbon just to round out and really kind of help pop up those other flavor profiles. Awesome. So, so when we actually get those, we kind of pull them down into tank. That's where they actually stay. So we can really preserve that really oak sweet and spice forward here. That was going to be my question. Yeah. So excellent. So you guys are really honing in. And, and one of the things that I've said in a lot of my articles and Orion, I know, I know you've seen me talk about this in my articles. I love whiskeys that are really secure in their flavor identity, if you will. And what I mean by that is, as I really love whiskeys that if they're going to be sweet, I want them to be 
really sweet. I want them to have a lot of vanilla. I want them to have a lot of butterscotch. If they're going to be oaky, you know, I want a lot of that, that wood sugar, molassesy, wood spice type of feel to it. Um, it you know, if it's going to be, uh, you know, spiced, I want a strong spice profile to it. And um, so it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing is creating these, these really uh, unique expressions, very comfortable in the direction in which they pull. And that's basically the idea. You know, we want, we have a very strong feel for the way that our standard blend should be or cast drink blend. Um, but when we're actually pulling out something that, you know, your group and account that I work with in Buffalo and other, you know, site that does online can take their own flavor profile to see what the actual group most enjoys and then start to try to craft their favorite version of a black button bourbon. Uh, it just kind of you know, flips the script on what we're trying to put out in the market on a daily basis and then offering that chance for you, know, you and your team and your group to become basically the master blenders of a black bone bourbon. Yeah, I think that's really cool because not only does it give people a window into what it's like to have a single barrel pick, you can kind of experience it from every aspect of it, not just being the one tasting it, but actually making what you're going to have. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, so it's been a lot of fun whenever, you know, either doing it virtually, especially right now during the pandemic uh, and right now at the current state. And then at the same time, when we get groups into the distillery, you know, we pull out a barrel, we put some chairs together and uh, we start pulling stuff out of tanks and we sit there and we start talking. You know, we would have you taste each of the tanks on their own, get a kind of base level for where everything sits. And then we just start picking pick a number on each. And let's just see kind of how everything turns out, and, you know, normally within six to eight rounds uh, at the distillery, that day you'll walk out with the blend you want. Um, it's very rare that the master distillers and, and the team have not come out with something on the same day. Well, one of the things that I think is really cool is that when you're part of a group or you're like us and you have a, a, an online publication or, or whatever, uh, when you do a single barrel, you kind of get sent a couple of samples, you know, and you get to choose from those samples. You can reject them and send back. But, you know, you really only have one chance to interface with people, which is like live streaming the tasting. And you've got to kind of describe what you're tasting and what you like and what you don't like. What, one of the cool things about this blending program is that if you're somebody like me um, – or you're somebody that, that has a, a group or a, a big fan base like that, it gives you multiple opportunities to engage with them. And it gives you multiple opportunities to include them in that process because you can even start from just the, uh, the survey like we're doing with our people. You know, you can say, what is the general consensus of a flavor profile for our audience right now? And then that can directly affect the samples that come to you. And then, they get to, they're essentially getting to pick from that live stream set of samples, something that they've already had input on. And it just gives them uh, more access. It's almost like being a virtual part of that whole process and that experience from the very ground up, because I, I've noticed with a lot of these picks, whenever you go, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to get. They roll out three barrels or four barrels and they just say, all right, try these, which one do you want? You know? So I think this is this is pretty cool, and and you know if they're only giving you a, an option of four barrels, and you have to go to the distillery, and you've made the, you've made a trip up to Kentucky, and and all of that, you're not you're not going to say, well, no, I'll just you know I'll just take another trip up to Kentucky in a month or so, and we'll pick again. You know, you're you're kind of kind of pigeonholed into picking one of what they give you. Yeah, I think that's where we really wanted to have a survey or somewhere kind of a crowdsourcing interaction uh, ability for groups like 
whiskey culture or anybody else, even, you know, some store partners, they, especially now, maybe they have five or six people at the store that they want to get involved in doing a custom blend, but they can't all get to the site at the same time. So by taking that information, you know, then I sit back with master distiller and him and I will sit and talk. We'll kind of look through that survey, look through the responses, say, okay, what are the key factors from that survey that we really want to focus on for this group? And then from there, we're going to take those notes. We're going to build a couple of samples just kind of off intuition of knowing the bourbon. And then we'll start talking about it. Say, does it hit, you know, okay, maybe you do want a really good spice finish, but, you know, you want some sweetness in there at the same time, you, you know, or you just want a really big oak bung of bourbon. You know, am I creating enough of that? And interestingly enough, if, you know, let's just say oak bung, you'd think, oh, I just want like all the oak that I can put into the bottle. Be really surprised that a lot of times it, it has to be far more balanced than that to actually make the oak be so present. Yeah. Then a lot of times you just get so much tannin and so much oak character that can throw it off. Yeah, and that's one of the things, man. Is is I I tried and Orion's going to laugh at this. I tried a you know a Michter's twenty one of the times that we were back up. Yep, see exactly, I knew it already. But uh, <laughs> man, I tried that and and to me, I loved. It, it was a really good balance of that oak. Exactly what you're talking about because it had that, you know, it had a lot of the oak, but it didn't have so much of that tannin, so much of that spice. Um, it was it was very vanilla. It was like a vanilla, you know, sweet vanilla, and then a vanilla spice in that oak forward, and it created a really nice blend of those things. But that, you know, that's exactly what you're talking about here is is creating that. And one of the things I want to ask you is, you know, we're seeing a lot of, well, we're not seeing a lot of, but we're seeing a, a, an acceptance in the community of these blended whiskeys, and it's something that's been very accepted with Scotch forever. But, you know, when you hear of, a, you know, a blended bourbon or a blended whiskey, people kind of throw their hands up and they're like, whoa, man, you yeah. know, you can look at the, you can look at a shelf and see, you know, 50 blended scotches right there. No one blinks an eye. But then you talk about blending a bourbon and people are kind of hesitant, but it, it allows you to create a, a very unique and custom profile because when you're making a whiskey, you've, you've got what you got in the barrel, you know, and then when you... When you, you when you put them into a batch, like a small batch, is essentially a blend of whiskeys. You know, if you see blended whiskey on there, people throw their hands up. But almost everything they drink is blended. It's just the same profile. Yeah. What you guys are doing is kind of taking what every like every distillery does and blowing it open with an intentionality rather than just a consistency. Exactly, and I think that's what people don't understand is just what you said. You know, every bourbon, you know, whatever. Let's just say there's a thousand barrels in a batch at a larger distillery. And, you know, we may do 20, 30 barrels in a batch and much, much tighter. You know, we always joke. I think Jack Daniels makes in about like 17 minutes what we make in like a year. Um, and that's just the total wide difference of being at a small craft handmade bourbon distillery. They don't touch with hands at some point at Jack Daniels. Um, but we're just taking exactly what we said. The process that we do to make our everyday 84 proof four grain blend or 100 plus proof cast strength, depending on that comes out, and just letting it go kind of granular to how we actually take step by step and making sure we have a consistent profile. Um, and it just makes a lot of fun time for anybody to get involved and to really get their hands into the process. Yeah, yeah and it's interesting because when you're when you're blending, you're kind of you know there there's all the science of distillation. There's a there's a science to it and an art. And I know that there's there's a, a dualistic way of thinking there. There are the people that think of blending or uh, not blending, but just distilling in general as a pure science. 
there are people that think of it as a pure art when that also is a blend of the two. But what you guys are doing, it's so interesting because when you're creating these unique blends for people and you're trying to hone in on a specific flavor and you have all of this different stuff to pick from, all these different, uh, you know, all these different profiles, all of these different intentional, you know, all of these different intentional barrelings and everything, you're, you're really falling back on creating something custom to the palate. And so... I just think that's really cool that you guys are are taking that approach. You guys are saying like, "Hey, what is the taste of the, the juice at the end of the at the end? What do you get yeah. in the bottle?" You know, and then working your way backwards from there. Whereas most of these people, you know, when you get a classic distiller, you're thinking, you know, it's a it's a very linear process. You don't really know what you're going to get until you've you've done it. You guys are kind of taking these things at the end. You're saying we're we're intentionally making all of these different things. And we're trying all of this different stuff. Now, how do we reverse engineer that with the thought of what flavor profile are we specifically trying to achieve and then working backwards from there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, taking the same foreground blend that, you know, obviously it, it does start from the juice. I mean, the, the distillate that comes off, it's clean. It's really, really solid distillate, all New York state grown ingredients. That's step one. I mean, you got to have good juice that comes off the still. Um, and then, you know, we put that stuff into the barrels at that point, and we're using still some smaller cooperage. We're moving our way up to where everything's averaging closer to a 30-gallon barrel. And then a couple of years down the road from now, I mean, I think it was starting last year, we put everything in 53-gallon. Mm-hmm. So we are going to be moving into the larger barrelage. It's just going to take a little more time. So with everything, we might be happy in Rochester, New York, our climate, our process, with a 15-gallon between two and a half and three and a half years. We may be happy with a 30-gallon at for three and a half to four and a half years. We're not going to be happy necessarily with 53 gallon until it's closer to the five to seven year range. That's just kind of seeing some of the trends today. So you guys are even so, playing with, with cask size and aging as well. Not just thinking about, you know, what, what mash bill you're putting in and where you're storing it, but you guys are playing with different cask sizes. You guys are playing with different, you know, different ages in those cask sizes and really trying to create almost like a, I guess a flavor matrix, if you will, where, You've just got all these different, you know, all these yeah. different types of overlays and, and almost like a big grid of different ages, flavors, cask sizes, mash bills. And so you guys are creating a, just a, a your own wide world of, of base ingredients, you know, of all different kinds to create unique profiles. Yeah, I mean, the mash bill is the same for all of them. So that's the one thing that does stay consistent. Um, it's 60 corn, 20 wheat, 11 malted barley, and 9 rye. So that's going to be the same that juice that's coming off the still every time for the blend. Mm-hmm. From there, I mean, a lot of the different barrel sizes were, you know, that's just necessity at the time being a small distillery. You know, we started in 2012, started laying down bourbon not long after that. And we didn't, you know, you got to start somewhat smaller to kind of see, you know, where is it going to go mm-hmm. down the road? Once we started to get that confidence, you know, we were able to lay into larger barrel. And then over time, also once cash flow gets a little bit better as a distillery, we put a little more investment back into the juice as much as we can. And that allows us to get to the larger barrel because we're more confident now to actually let things sit. We know the juice so much better. So it's risky. I mean, when you start out, I mean, you know, we had stuff that was under two years. We had stuff that was under one year. And that's just kind of the way we wanted to know the product so well that by the time we're doing the longer barrelage, we're doing the larger barrels, we'll have a better idea of what it's going to turn out. Yeah. So, but every blend is all about when that barrel's ready. So we may have a set of barrels that we're blending 15s, 23s, and 30s because the team has such a solid ability to pick the right barrel and the right time on our bourbon 
they know that these are the ones that are ready. These are the ones that fit our standard profile. Or like you said, if we do have a random single barrel, they know when those come out as well. Yeah, I think one of the, just touching back on that blending aspect, it's more of like a stigma, I think, developed by almost advertisements. Because when you say, this is it, this is pure whiskey, this is just all we did, this is one thing, and now it's in the bottle, it's nothing else. That's kind of like saying other things aren't whiskey, if you blend it together, but it's it can be good stuff from any source, any age, kind of. I found amazing two-year whiskeys, and you see huge potential. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, age is a number. It's a very big factor in our industry, yeah. and it does have some importance. There is a certain point when whiskey is just a little too young to be ready to go. Now, and we've always been uh, a part of that. We've always known that, you know, yes, some of our whiskey is a little younger than we'd like it to be, but we've been surprised at the quality. And it's different. The 15 gallons, they have a different character than the 23 or 30 just because of the tight barrelage. I mean, we're getting 120 degree temperature swings throughout the course of a year in our warehouse that we store the majority of our whiskey. I mean, it's basically just a metal shell. It, it was meant for like boat storage and we happen to find it's perfect. It's all like cement floored, metal walls straight up. It, it's summer, it's ridiculously hot. If it's winter, you cannot keep your hands warm by anything yeah. you want to do. It, it's just, that's what we try to do. Um, like we don't even pull barrels generally between like late December and early March. It's just too cold. Uh, the whiskey's so locked up in the barrels yeah. that we just find that it's not the quality that we want it to be when it actually warms up and it starts to release and, and you know contract again from those barrels. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting up there because you know there's there's so many different you know we're starting to see whiskey and bourbon come from so many different places and like so many people were just like Kentucky. Kentucky, Tennessee, that's it. And now we're starting to see, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, Colorado. We're starting to see all of these things start to piece together. And and we're starting to see the merit of having whiskey coming from all of these different areas. Because they all, they, you know, the, the pressure systems, the weather systems, the, the uh, weather patterns when it comes to how hot and cold it gets during the seasons, the, the swinging of the temperatures, the grain, you know, where it's made, to, you know, exactly. And we're starting to, yeah, exactly. Like the, the, just the minerals, like we're seeing a lot of the people in, in Colorado, the, like laws, they're just picking up all of the, you know, they're picking up stuff that's local to theirs. They're trying to focus on heirloom grains that, that have evolved in that type of climate for decades. And, and it, it does change everything. And so we're starting to see stuff come from all different areas and, and all different places around the country. And, you know, so it, it's pretty interesting. What up in New York is, is one of those things that's kind of unique to you guys. Cause I, I know it gets super cold up there. I, I know it can get hot too. You guys have some pretty big temperature swings as well. Um, and I know that's really important to the whiskey, but what, what are some of the things that are up in New York that kind of make, makes that scene unique? So definitely temperature is a big play. Um, like I, I was just thinking, I was like, you know, if we were to take the same barrels that we're producing today, you know, we'll make the juice here. Let's say we put it in a barrel, we ship it down to Texas or even Florida, or one of these, you know, much hotter, even more humid climates. The whiskey would be totally different. Listen, I'm in Florida and I can tell you it, it is hot and humid. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we would have totally different whiskey. Uh, the timings would be all different. The quality would be all different. I mean, I, I don't even know what that would do necessarily, but it, it just would change everything. Even if we send it to Kentucky, just, you know, once you get slightly different temperature changes, 
it's going to change the process. So, I mean, we do get those really wide changes. We get a lot of colder months. So we get, you know, a lot of months, especially in Buffalo and Rochester. I mean, heck, guys, we've never been up to 100 degrees in Buffalo, New York, where I live. Never on record, anything over 90, some odd degrees. So you guys have a completely different climate down in Florida. And right up in Maine, I mean, you probably see a little bit more like we do. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a swing. It is. It's, I'm surprised at actually how warm it was when I first got up here. But even we have different pressures. You know, we're in between two lakes. So, I mean, you always hear about buffalo and snow. I mean, my gosh, we get crazy random snow where there'll be one line of snow and it will be south, of, like 10 miles south of where I live. They could get four feet of snow 10 miles away from me and I could get a, just a slight little dusting where I'm at. Yeah. Um, so we just get a lot of different weather up our way. Um, but also the agriculture in the state. I mean, we have a really great agricultural space. Um, the Finger Lakes specifically is a big wine region, obviously, uh, but that's also where a lot of our greens come from. It's a really good growing region uh, for the corn, the malted barley, the rye, the wheat that we're using mostly. Um, and even we use a really, really small family-owned malt house to do all of our malting for the barley. You know, still, they basically are there every single day of the week. Somebody from the family is still, you know, open floor working the malt. So That's awesome. It's a really cool knit of like all local people that are helping to create the product we do. So you guys are, are really focusing in then on that, that local craft, you know, quality ingredients, I feel you guys, you know, and we we're talking about age earlier, you know, there's a lot of people that think that if you just stick any sort of whiskey in a barrel and let it sit long enough, it'll be good. But I, I'm of the belief, you know, that and, and just this is, you know, I could be completely wrong, but this is just off of my personal experience going around and trying different whiskeys of different ages at different places. It's, you know, I, I'm a big, I, I enjoy moonshine. You know, I'm one of those people that I really enjoy trying spirits completely unaged. Um, like our guys down here at Tarpon Springs, they, they do a moonshine that is phenomenal Tarpon Springs distillery. And they, you know, it's really good, but I'm a big believer that when you put something good and quality like that in, it's, you know, quality in, quality out. Now, the age can help smooth over some of those imperfections, and it can help along some of those desirable characteristics and, and work out some of the, you know, some of the heat and some of the tannins and stuff that might make it taste a little bit more you know, harsh or, or sharp. But I'm, I'm a big believer in quality in, quality out. If you put good juice into a barrel, you know, as long as you're keeping up with it and you're making sure that those, um, you know, that that the age is affecting it properly and you don't let it sit too long because too much of a good thing is, you know, like they say, too much of a good thing is, isn't a good thing. But um, when you're putting whiskey that is not great in to the barrel and you're kind of just putting whatever new neutral grain spirits you don't really care about, your thought is like, hey, I want to produce as much whiskey with as cheap ingredients to make as much money as possible you know, that, that barrel kind of, it may remove some of the sharpness, but you're going to get, you know, you're going to get put in crap. You're going to get crap back out. You know, it's, you, you have a lot of those undesirable like cogeners and stuff like that, that stay in the whiskey and then kind of amplify with that age. So it's good to hear that you guys are using these, you know, these local places that have quality grain. You guys are taking a, a strong approach to, to how you guys are making your whiskey, you know, because that's again, quality in quality out. So it's good to hear that you guys are doing a lot of that local sourcing and stuff like that, that, that we've found to make a huge impact in the whiskey from straight off the still until you pull it out of a barrel. 
it really is kind of the heart and soul of what we do at the company. I mean, when we, one nice thing New York State actually does have is they have a farm distilling license mm-hmm. in place for distilleries that choose to take advantage of it. So that just means 75, 80% or more of all ingredients have got to be New York State based. We might spend a little bit more on ingredients, but we believe we have some of the best grain you can work with right near our, you know, our front door. We do all of our production. We, again, we work with one farm. You know, every year, we, even every year, we'll kind of buy or get involved in two different plots on the same farm just in case there's an issue with one side or the other. Uh, just gives us some security. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen in farming. It can always be really difficult. So that's really been a big focus of ours. Have the good ingredients. Make everything in Rochester from green to glass. I mean, I've personally tasted the distillate come off at about 160 proof, and it's clean. It's got a lot of great sweetness and a lot of great grain character in there. Um, it's not musty. It's not funky. It, it really is the reason that even at a younger age, the bourbon can drink much more mature than it is. Yeah, I, I enjoy that. That that clean when it comes off the still clean, it just it signals good things for <laughs> for once it's yeah. aged. Absolutely. I think a, another thing that you guys have just mentioned that climate thing. I personally had never been like the northern side of New York. I've always gone like the eastern coast up to New York City. So that was my picture of New York. But this past year, I was actually moving more stuff up from Florida to Maine. And I drove that northern way because I went to Indiana and came east. And um, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous in northern New York. You don't think of how beautiful and like sprawling the land is, but it's a really cool place. My family's from Columbus, and uh, we swing up just under Lake Erie all the way over. And Ohio, as much as I love the state, it's a really boring drive. It's just not going on. So you get up right into the very far northeast corner before EPA. But yeah, there's uh, some absolutely beautiful spaces in New York, Finger Lakes region especially, um, and right around Rochester. Yeah. So I, I have to ask, is is Ohio, because you're there, is it really the promised land for Weller? Because I just see, <laughs> dude, I just see... I literally see people posting. They're like, oh, yeah, made my trip through Ohio. And they have like a box of just like every kind of Weller you could ever imagine. And I'm like, what is going on with Ohio, dude? From my own experience, I uh, when I left Ohio, I was 18. So I have not searched for Weller. But I do. I mean, everybody I see on Bourbon Groups coming from Ohio, they are finding so much Weller. I, I don't know what it is about, you know, being obviously state controlled in Ohio. So I just think there must be more of an abundance there than, you know, I know it's a little bit harder to find in New York. Um, we, you know, just liquor stores have their own control of what they want to do in New York State. But yeah, it seems like everybody who's looking for Weller wants to go somewhere in Ohio to find it. Yeah, yeah it's just, I, I just, I heard you say Ohio and I, I've seen like four posts this week about like, went to Ohio, found 92 bottles of Weller. I had to buy a, I had to buy a trailer just to bring it all back. I'm like, oh my Lord. <laughs> Like, it's funny though, like, you know, we go to Kentucky all the time and everyone thinks like, uh, like I'll get, I, I have so many friends around here that have my phone number that I probably, I should have a whiskey culture phone line just because of all the people <laughs> that every time they hear that I'm going to Kentucky, I just get bombarded with people that are like, Hey, if you find anything good, like if you find anything really rare or hard to get, like, you know, I'd be happy to Venmo you. I'm like, dude, I'd be happy to pay for it for me. <laughs> But everybody who goes to Kentucky <laughs> isn't looking for the same exact. Yeah. Amount. And that's, that's the thing that I found is like Kentucky is, it's hard to find stuff that's good. And when you do, it's in a major metropolitan area and it's four times the cost. It's like, it's crazy, man. Yeah. Like 
or Orion and I on the trips up, we've seen some absolutely bonkers stuff. And we stop at Orion, I'd have to say what, like 40, 50 liquor stores, like, yeah. you know, each trip we probably like no joke. We probably stop between 30 to 40 liquor stores in, in the course of a week and a half, which is our normal trip length. And we, sometimes we find a little something here or there. Like we'll be like, Oh, look, Eagle rares on the shelf at, at not 60 bucks. That's awesome. And, but we've seen some absolutely ludicrous stuff. Like we, you know, we saw uh baby Sazerac, you know, should have a price point of what around like 20, 26, 27 bucks. Yeah. Before and, he says the price, do you have any heart conditions we need to worry about? Because this is <laughs> no, I'm good. unbelievable. I'll be all right. Okay, dude. All right. So we, we walked into, I forget the name of the, the, the liquor store, but we we're in Kentucky and we're like, we're seeing all these positive reviews for this place. And we're like, Oh, we should go check it out. You know, we got nothing to do right now. We just, just, you know, just finished footage, just finished dinner. It's not too far out of the way. So we go show up, man. And, and they're like the, the bad thing that we first saw was that they had Orion. What was it? Buffalo trace for, for, for what was it? 69 99. First off, it was Buffalo Trace behind a shelf, so that's a problem. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a red flag <laughs> immediately. Yeah, and then we, um, you know, we we ended up going. They were like, "Oh yeah, all the really good stuff is in that lockup case over there." We walked over and they had Baby Saz for two hundred dollars, and I was like, "Are you <laughs> insane?" But and then we went to another one, man, where some of these liquor stores get sketchy. You know, we went to Orion. Oh, you remember that place we went? Um, where was it? It was after dinner, but it was, it was right about to close. And we walked in and that, that guy had no prices on the Eagle rare or the Buffalo trace. Yeah, which it is was, it was another near. red flag. <laughs> yeah. It was like, everything had a price and then the Buffalo trace not. And, uh, you know, we were like, yeah, so what's the price on the, the Eagle rare. And he's like, well, you know, normal, normally it's pretty expensive, but I'll, I'll cut you guys a really good deal. Cause you, you guys seem like, all right, guys, I was like, what's the deal? And he was like, you know, 80 bucks for an Eagle rare. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I was like, dude, uh, it's like, I would not be willing to pay more than, <laughs> you know, 35 bucks for an Eagle rare and a pinch, you know? And, and he was like, he was like, oh man, you're never going to find an Eagle rare for that. I was like, yeah, you will. You just, it takes a minute, but like <laughs> patience, don't worry. I'll get there. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, well, let's climb back out of that rabbit hole. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, so I think this, this barrel program that you have is super cool. I love hearing that you guys are doing all of this local stuff. The blending program is really awesome. Um, can, and one of the questions I want to ask that, that some people might be thinking, cause they're a member of a local group or they, they have a, a store in their, uh, vicinity. I mean, can, can really, is how long is the list for that blending program? Can, if somebody really wants it, can they contact you guys at, like can a store contact you all or a group contact you all and, and do this same blending program? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the nice thing about being a little bit smaller is, you know, I personally work on this along with the master distiller, Jeff Fairbrother uh, and Jason Barrett, who's the owner of the company. Uh, also the other master distiller for our company. We work on this all together. So, I mean, we are very excited to work with any new groups that are up for, you know, getting getting their hands dirty a little bit and trying mm -hmm. out some samples. I know it's hard work, but somebody has to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we love any opportunity for somebody to reach out. I mean, it, there's always going to be a time frame between, depending on how many rounds we have to go back and forth on samples, but we can always find a spot for people. 
Awesome. Well, I mean, that, so that's good. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that you guys are, are very, you know, you guys are very into the community and wanting them to be able to, to get access to this program. Again, I think it's really cool because you get to build it with your, you know, it's your palette from the ground up, which I think is, is awesome because there's not a lot of opportunities to, to do that. You kind of get to pick from what you're dealt. This time you get to really just say, this is, these are the flavors I'm looking for. Let's do it. You know, which is, is a pretty yeah. cool path forward. And we love it. Cause I mean, it, it, it does challenge us as a company to create something so unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes, you know, we like to go by, you know, a few kind of round robins between, you know, myself, the master distiller, maybe one or other two key people who are honestly, somebody's in the tasting room and they're, they've got a minute, come out and try this. Tell us if you think it fits these things. Um, we're always looking to use the palettes of our team and obviously those who are actually doing the sampling day in, day out uh, to make sure that we're hitting, you know, these key factors that are coming from each group. So it, it's a lot of fun and, you know, we, our whole community loves to get involved. Awesome. Well, I'd like to say thank you for being on with us. Um, we're really excited to be working with you, with our community. Um, and it's really cool that you're doing this with a bunch of other communities too, and, and really helping them create something that, you know, a lot of people say something unique, but this is something that really is unique to you all. And I know that you guys have the bespoke blend on the the thing. And, and for those of you that don't know, you know, bespoke means it's something that's unique and proprietary, something that's individual. And you guys, you know, you, you see a lot of people throw words around like that, but when you guys say bespoke, you literally mean that it is individual and proprietary yeah. to that, that person, that group, that palette. So I think that's really cool, but yeah, I'd like to say thank Thank you for coming on. Thank you for taking your time with us. It's been really cool, you know, getting to know you over the last couple of weeks and, and getting into this program and building something. And thank you for coming on to share that with our, our listeners and our followers. Yeah. Greg, Orion, it was awesome guys. Uh, you know, we're always looking forward to speaking with people who are really dedicated to telling the craft whiskey story and to kind of respecting what's out there with the small distillers. Uh, it's, it's always refreshing to get that. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, I am, uh, just so glad that you guys were here to join us today. Um, we, are just thrilled to be working with you guys. It's really, really exciting. Um, I know I keep saying that, but I'm kind of nerding out because I've never, you know, we've, we've gotten to be on barrel picks. I've gotten to try some stuff, but we've never been able to just create something from the ground up. So I'm, yeah. I'm kind of nerding out a little bit about it. It's pretty awesome. So um, we're cool with that, but thank you guys again for joining us on the whiskey culture podcast, where we talk all things whiskey Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. You can sign up for free at whiskeyculture.com. Also, don't forget to try signing up for our Barrel Club. It is your chance to get early access to content, hilarious bloopers of Orion and I totally messing everything up. Uh, You'll get to know a little bit more about us and have some some cool interface opportunities with us and other industry insiders. And you'll also have an opportunity to get early access to our barrel picks and our private barrels like we're doing here with Black Button. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, send in some mail to us. We'll, we'll write you back. No, we won't. We won't write you back. It'll, (laughs) I'm sorry. We won't. But anyways, thank you all so much. We'll see you guys next time. Alex, thanks for being on with us.